All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. Tonight, we got a special episode that it's like something that I've never seen before, something that we've certainly never done before. So the response from last week's show, uh, season three, episode seven with Chuck Dachara, which was police reform based, the response was so large that I decided to go back, rethink it and put together an all-star panel of some of the greatest minds in police work in Massachusetts that we have that are still on the job today. So what we're going to do is I'm going to bring people on. We're going to start with some of the things that we think that we're already doing, and then we're going to go from there. The whole point of this show tonight is it is to give you the public a view as to what kind of input police might have had if we were involved from the beginning with the inception of this police reform bill. It is something that you deserve to see, and it is something that I believe the public transparency, and they want to know how these decisions are being made. So we're giving police a chance to give their piece, even though, again, we weren't really included from the outset of this. So without further ado, let me bring on our first guest of the night. The first guest tonight is Timmy Cahoon. So Tim is an executive level police officer. Tim, why don't you tell everybody about yourself and please, and uh, and welcome to Supply the Why. Dean, thanks a lot for having me um, and the other panelists that they'll soon see. Uh, quite an honor to be on with the, all the fellows that are coming on right behind me here. But uh, I've been a police officer over 25 years. I've served in a bunch of different capacities on the job, canine, SWAT, uh, detectives, and I've now reached a level uh, of executive leadership where I'm a deputy chief of a medium-sized police department in Massachusetts. Um, and I think tonight, you know, there'll probably be a lot of cops watching, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people in the public watching. Hopefully we can clarify some of the issues that I think cops um, may not have all of the all of the details of the reform bill. And frankly, I don't, I don't know that any of us do, because there's a lot of things that are misunderstood. And frankly, there's a lot of things in there that we won't know how it's going to how it's going to shake out until it really takes form. So there's a lot of strong emotions involved in this, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to shed some light on that. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm happy to be here and happy to be part of the solution with you, Dean. What you do is fantastic. We need to have more of that. Well, I, I appreciate that, Tim. You and I, um, we, we, we kind of met in kind of a different way. One of the things you left out is, don't you also have another role outside of the police department where you oversee a, a, a tactical team or you're one of the, one of the, the, Big wigs on a tactical team. <laughs> so I share those duties with uh, two of the best in the business um, as a as a team commander. And since my promotion to deputy chief, recent promotion to deputy chief in the last eight or nine months, uh, those guys have been bearing more in the burden than I have. So, uh, but yeah, we have a sixty man uh, regional SWAT team that I've uh, been a part of since you know over twenty years. So it's uh, it's something that I love and have a lot of passion for. And, uh, you know, a lot of the police reform bill could affect some of the operations, but it all depends on how everything shakes out. I think it's important, and I know Chucky DeChara will hit on this, and and and, um, and Dwayne and John will hit on this too, is that this isn't a finished product, and there's going to be some input later. We wish we had more input uh, coming up to this point, and I think the cops feel that frustration, but it's still not a finished product, and we're hoping to get to a point where it's... Um, I don't want to say more palatable because the whole thing change is good. It promotes growth, but we want to make sure that we're in a position that, uh, you know, the cops that are out there that are nervous about doing the job like they've always done. Um, it's real. The sky isn't falling. So I think we're in good shape. All right. Well, well said, Tim. And again, thanks for joining us. It's a, it's, it's an honor to have you here. So you. on that note, Dwayne Forts is back. Uh, season two, episode seven, defensive tactics. Uh, one of the most one of the most popular episodes that we've done. Dwayne, welcome back, my man. Yeah, Dean, thanks for having me. It's an honor. It's an honor that you asked me. It's an honor to be on your show, hands down. So, for those that weren't able to, and, and the honor's ours. So, those that weren't able to catch um, that episode that you were on with Steve Woldsmith, tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. Give us your background, really quick. So, uh, Dwayne Forts uh, came out of the Marine Corps, got into. Um, the correction side of the house and been there since 1993, moved up through the ranks. And uh, during my time, you know, I got sworn in as a deputy sheriff decades ago and uh, I was allowed to uh, my department administration very, very 
you know, training oriented and friendly, got to send me off, you know, and uh, received a whole handful of training, you know, law enforcement uh, related, uh, which then people like uh, Steve Waldremuth, Chuck, who, who and, and Sean Barbell allowed to open the door for me. So I uh, sit on the defensive tactics uh, board, you know, for the state, the only non police officer, because everybody that knows me, I don't try to be somebody I'm not. I'm not out there pulling over cars, this, that, and the other. So I stay in my lane. And um, I learned a lot through, uh, through my years. And um, I find it very interesting because it all comes down to the why. And that's why your show is, is very important. And that's, that's me in a nutshell. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out to be here. You know, Lord knows you are, you are a guru in the defensive tactics world and you have a lot to offer, which is why you are a part of this panel. All right. So, so kudos to you. So without further ado, let's bring back a guy. It seems like he's spending a lot of time here. I think my wife is starting to think that there's something going on because I've been on the phone with, with Chuck a lot recently. Uh, Chuck, welcome back, man. Two weeks in a row. Uh, my, my pleasure to be here. Is, is your wife asking why all the defensive tactics instructors have their heads shaved? Is, is that like a thing? <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to be back. Last week was really good. I didn't know how it was. Uh, I didn't know if now it was going to be a long time, but I felt like we just started talking. And then, you know, I felt like we could have gone two more hours. So it was a, it was a great show last week. I, I, I feel like it's a privilege to be on here. And, you know, I enjoy talking to uh, non-law enforcement personnel. And I also uh, you know, interested to talk to some of my police officer family out there that are uh, – nervous about this bill. So I'm looking forward to it. Great, great, great group you got. Well, outstanding, Chuck. I'm glad you could be here as well. Uh, one of the biggest pieces of feedback that I got from all over, like you, like we talked about earlier, there was somebody from Australia that was on the show. We had people from California, people from the Midwest. People are dying for transparency. They want an open and honest communication. And that's police officers as well as the general public. So that is what we gave them last week, and that is the goal of this week. It's not necessarily to win the conversation. It's not to say, hey, we got all the answers here, because we don't. There might even be times during this show where we all don't, don't agree on something, and that's perfectly fine. That is what the decision-making process is supposed to look like. It's not supposed to be groupthink, where you come in, one person says something, and everybody just says, I agree, and then that's the end of it. That's not how um, complex bills are supposed to be put into place. So right, Nice. You got the you got that from the admin personnel. Uh, you know, you got you got um, supervisors, front high end supervisors, and, and patrol guys. So hopefully, we can kick around uh, kick around the stuff at all levels. No, oh, I, I I certainly hope so. We have every level of law enforcement covered, including this one. So our third, uh, our fourth panelist is a man that I met back in two thousand six, back during the dog days of the old Lowell Police yeah. Academy. And I have, and I, I already told uh, this is attorney John Sheff. I already told him that when you are in that capacity and you are in week one or two, and you know nobody knows your name and you're just getting yelled at no matter what you do, and then you have the the chance to when you're done with your PT and you're done with that discipline part of your day to sit and learn from somebody who makes class so fun and so interesting and breaks things down into the into the all the little minutia that that anybody could understand how to apply criminal law and criminal procedure. Huh. Um, that's Mr. John Sheft right here. So well, attorney you. John Sheft, wow. thank you so much for coming out and, and, uh, and, and being with us tonight. You're welcome. The lawyer is here, right? <laughs> so John, can you tell everybody a little bit about you and, and what you do beyond what I just said? Sure. Real quickly, I'm a former prosecutor and I always joke I went to the dark side. I did defense work for a while and I'm really glad I got to see the police police officer work from both sides, prosecuting and defense. And pretty much I've been training police officers really since 1994. My company's called Law Enforcement Dimensions and I teach at every level, recruit, veteran, specialty, command. And uh, I've just been fascinated to be in the world of law enforcement and helping people, I hope, do the job. Oh, there's no hope about it. You know, like, like I said, you know, it's, um, you know, you were one of the one of the greatest instructors that I had. And Thanks. again, I know that if us as police officers, we can benefit from your knowledge. I know that the general public, the people that aren't on the job that are watching this, and I hope there's a lot of them, they can meet, you can maybe help bridge the gap and help them understand where uh, some of these concerns come from. So let's get into it. So the police reform bill has a lot of different components to it. 
And like Chuck and I touched upon last week, we don't really think it's sky is falling time because a lot of that is things that we're already doing. So one of the things that we're already doing and that's been talked about in all different aspects of police training is de-escalation. So right. can you talk a little bit about the de-escalation piece in the bill? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, ever since I've known officers, especially Chucky, Tim, I've seen them teach. I've seen them do their thing. And officers learn to de-escalate. Uh, and the things that we talk about are so simple, warning people, trying to persuade them. Sometimes you wait somebody out a little bit. Sometimes officers will create distance. So a lot of the things that officers have been doing naturally are now something that is in the bill and is part of the definition of use of force. And I do think that's good because at least for the younger officers, they're going to be thinking about that now. It's going to be an explicit part of their training. So I I don't think it's going to make officers do a lot of things that they haven't been doing. That's how I see it. All right. That, that's fair enough. Yeah. So one of the things that I did notice in the bill was there's an expectation that we are to take more time to let things play out. Right. So can you tell us about the example? You you gave an example because again, I've had, I've had so many of your classes and I've heard so many of your tapes. I could hear the sarcasm in your, in, in, in your words when you wrote them out. You gave an example about when that might be problematic. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. So the standard is, uh, you know, de-escalation, have you tried it and has it failed or um, is it not feasible? And if you look up feasible, it basically means capable of being successful. Mm -hmm. So it, again, I, I use this example because at no point is this going to get ridiculous where if you show up and somebody's drunk and they're screaming and they're on somebody else's porch and they're insisting it's their home, you're not going to let them go on for an hour or two hours, right? At, at a certain point, you're just going to step up and say, come on, let's go, buddy, right? Because clearly the homeowners, you know, policing is always a balance. One of the things I get a little bit concerned about is I always see this in law enforcement. I'm old enough. The pendulum is always swinging back and forth. So, you know, in the old days, it was just, uh, you know, screw, screw the suspect. You know, you can do anything. It's all about the victim. And now we've kind of gone to the other extreme where it's, oh, everything's about the suspect. Everything's about the person we're dealing with. And, you know, the public, right, the public has to be protected, too. We've got to balance it. I, I agree with you 100 percent on that. So I'm going to go to Deputy Chief Cahoon on this one. So. Let's talk about it from an executive standpoint. So how did this create kind of like a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation for you, um, Tim? Like if this is something, for example, we're supposed to wait people out, which I think the expectation, whether we like it or not, is going to be to allow more time for these things to play out. If it's not obvious that there's going to turn into a, a physical situation, people are going to want us to wait it out a little bit more. So let's talk about this 3 a.m. in the morning. I got somebody screaming on my front porch. If we take decisive action against this person who decides that, hey, I know my rights. I know you people are supposed to try to wait me out. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to force the issue. And we don't take them into custody right away. And now this goes on for a couple hours versus if we do arrest them. And now this person turns around and says, well, hey, wait a minute. You were supposed to call a clinician. You were supposed to wait me out. Either way, it seems like somebody at the executive level of an organization is probably going to get a phone call. So could you talk about uh, what that might be like? Yeah. So, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we're going to have to have better definition on exactly what they want in this bill, right? Because we have to be able to still do our jobs. We Don't forget the people who are in that neighborhood in, in this example have rights as well. And they have they have right to, you know, they have the, the, the peace of their neighborhood. So... They're going to have expectations of the police officers and what they need to be doing. And with regards to de-escalation, I mean, we've been every good cop has been doing that for, you know, dozens of years. I mean, that's been going on as long as I've been a police officer. Different names do it. Um, but to, to more to your question, if that comes to us, we're going to look at it like a reasonableness standard. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that we can really rely on when we're trying to. Um, 
you know, put yourself in the shoes of that police officer, put yourself in the shoes of those neighbors. And if they end up having to go hands on with somebody, as long as they've tried to de-escalate that, as long as they've uh, made some attempts of lesser uh, uses of force or no force or just trying to get somebody off that porch, then I, I mean, it would, would it be reasonable now to go put your hands on somebody to to bring the, you know peace to that situation? I, I would think it would be. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in the bill that don't have clarity with regard to definitions. And I think those are the things that we need before we can really make a, uh, we're kind of putting the cart ahead of the horse uh, because we don't know how this is gonna play out on the street yet until there are some decisions. And that frankly gives cops a little bit of trepidation and I don't, I don't blame them, but I think we'll get there, Dean. All right, fair enough. So with that in mind, I'm gonna bounce over to Dwayne. So Dwayne, as an instructor, as somebody, and I know that you, I mean, you, you work seven days a week. I mean, I see you, you know, you're, you're instructing, you're always teaching something. You are a consummate teacher. How is this going to affect the way that you are teaching new cops? And, and when we have our annual in-service that you are ingraining this new way of doing things with veteran cops, if it's even a new way of doing things at all in your eyes. It, it really hasn't. It really hasn't been a, uh, a change. And with the, with the new reform bill, um, it's still in its, in its, you know, adolescent stages. It hasn't even been born yet, to be exact. And with that being said, um, de-escalation, like what is the definition of de-escalation? You know, it's the reduction of the intensity of a conflict or a potentially violent situation. So in the training aspect of it, as long as the officer or officers are lawfully situated, and what does the law say about the law? And, and Mr. Chef can correct me, uh, you know, I'm not an attorney, but to, to, to regurgitate time and time again. And what I heard is that, you know, um, officers may use any amount of force that is reasonable given the totality of circumstances. With that being said, as long as the officers are lawfully situated and the force is reasonable, however, if the officers aren't lawfully situated, then any amount of force that is used is going to be deemed excessive, unnecessary, because it's not consistent with the law. So the example that Mr. Chef gave about three o'clock in the morning, that's a, that's a good example. Like how long do you let something like that go on? De-escalation, is, this is nothing new at all. And Chuck's gonna come on and hope he, you know, he echoes it again. The sky is not falling. Sky is not falling. Situations no. change, we just gotta change the situation. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And as far as, you know, like the definition, so that's great that you have definitions. But I know there's a lot of concerns amongst police officers as far as how is this going to be applied? Now, is there going to be some sort of universal training for the people that are going to be working at the post? And for those of you that are, that are unfamiliar with the term post, it means peace officers, standards, and training. So at most other states have a post system. Massachusetts, we have the, the MPTC, which is the Municipal Police Training Council. So they are also going to, there's going to be a post system that's going to go into place, I believe, July 1st. So people are going to be looking for definitions when we teach. So Chuck, this is a natural transition to bring you in. People are going to be asking you for definitions. How are we handling that? And how are we um, going to be putting people at ease about that things aren't really going to change? If you're a good cop going out to do the right thing, how is that going to play out? So what are you going to talk about in your classes? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with Wayne. It's, there's not going to be a uh, ton of, um, you know, it's not going to be reinventing the wheel. We're going to teach what we always taught, but we just kind of find some ways to put it out there, maybe teach de-escalation. Um, and to the, you know, I know people that aren't police officers think of de-escalation as maybe some verbal judo or some um, some some verbal wizardry. It's not. De-escalation is an outcome. So I think we go back to teaching uh, police officers that let's let's try to look for a peaceful outcome and uh, let's try to use good tactics to help us do that. But I think what you're going to see across the state is it'll be mandatory. We'll roll out a bunch of um, de-escalation classes just so everybody understands this is a definition of de-escalation. Um, this is when you have to use this. This is what tactically feasible means. There's obviously some play in the word de-escalation because it, it's very subjective. Like I, I, I might think warning somebody three times while I'm in uniform and, you know, um, warning somebody before I tase them, I, I might think that's de-escalating the situation and you're, you're a sergeant and you don't think that I use proper de-escalation. So there's going to be some subjectivity to it. And um, 
you know, I think at the end of the day, police officers uh, will play by the rules 100%. We just kind of right now with uh, people are nervous right now because we feel like we don't know what the rules are. So from I'm a patrolman for life, 33 years. So um, I'm, I'm not a supervisor. So from a patrolman's point of view, for the other patrolmen that are out there, the point of view is, well, we just need to know what the rules are. And when we know what the definition is and we know what the rules are, then we'll be fine with it. So I think this next year we roll out some training classes on what the escalation is, explain to them that um, good police officers are not going to lose their job. It's going to be still okay to go out there and do your job. It's just going to be uh, paramount that we explain a little bit in our reports when we did try these de-escalation tactics. So we've always done it. It's more just documenting that we did it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm going to speak for myself. I don't think that I'm alone on this. I would feel a whole lot better if the people that are going to be charged with making these decisions and doing these investigations for post had to sit in on the classes that we teach. That way, A, they know what's being taught, and B, they have a realistic expectation as to how these things typically play out in the real world, as opposed to, say, reading a book about it, or I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, now I know defensive tactics and use of force. You know what I mean? So that, it can't that, be that. That's what we're looking to do with the MPTC over the training council is when they do have this post. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not even sure if the post commission is, is been, has been picked. So when they do decide who's going to make these decisions, I think it's paramount. We do have really talented instructors in the state. So I think it's important that when they do put this post committee together, they, they go through some training and they understand the way the police officers are taught and trained in the state and that they, they're, they hear it from the subject matter experts in the field in Massachusetts because we do have those. So I think they probably have to go through some training, I would hope, or I would think that would be reasonable for me that they would get some training before they decide what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. All right. Well said. So let's hit the chat. The chat's lighting up, as I'm sure you can imagine. So John uh, Encarnacio says, the problem is many times we law enforcement are being judged by inexperienced individuals who have a different idea of what is reasonable. For example, shooting a suspect who has a knife. So inevitably, this was going to turn into use of force. So John, I'm going to bring John back on for this. John, touch upon that. And then there's something else that, that was in the chat that I feel like we need to, uh, to, to touch upon before I throw it back out to the rest of the panel. So what is your thought on John's comment? Well, I wanted, I, I agree with him. And it's very interesting. I think policing now is sort of like uh, a restaurant, like everybody thinks they can own a restaurant. You know, everybody sort of thinks like, well, I know how the police should interact with people. And I've had experience with the police, but I'm going to tell you something really surprising. And the guy who did this research is Chuck's, Chuck Wexler at the police research for uh, executive research forum. And one of the things that's fascinating is believe it or not, civilian review boards overall have been more lenient for police misconduct than internal affairs units. And I know you're thinking, John, that's crazy. That's I think not it's true. outstanding. Please tell me more. <laughs> but it is true because what happens is the citizens who sit on these boards, they end up learning about police training. They learn about police response. They see how hard it is. Hey, I'm a guy who's, you know, shot somebody with a stapler during range 3000. You know, I think, there is going to be a need to get citizens who serve on these on this commission to sort of understand the world that police officers inhabit, what is reasonable, what isn't. But I have to tell you, I also think there is a place for citizen input into law enforcement. I think police today are better because they listen to citizens more. I don't think community policing is just window dressing. I think in some departments, when it's really done with sincerity, it produces phenomenal results. So I, 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 I see this as maybe being positive. I really do. I know people are afraid of it, but I think it'll be okay. Well, and, and I, I agree with you. And again, I think what we're doing tonight, and we're getting the police officer's view, or the police trainer's view of this bill out there, because the, this is something nobody's, nobody's really presented this to the public before. And they deserve to know what our thoughts on it in a way that's non-judgmental and no, and there's no anger. We just want to talk about it. We're reasonable, intelligent people, and we need to get this out there. So that's that's I'm hoping that that's part of what comes from this. So this is a perfect time to transition to a phenomenal question that I knew somebody was going to ask was, or a, a 
or I should say a request is to please get John to speak about qualified immunity and what it is and about the proposed changes. Great. So in a nutshell, qualified immunity basically says when a law enforcement officer is sued for a constitutional violation, that it's unfair to criticize an officer in an area of law that isn't clear cut. So I'll just give you an example of a case very quickly. So an officer I know, uh, she responded to a call. The neighbor had said, oh, my neighbor's door is open. And she ended up looking around the house. And then she went into the house and she found a huge marijuana grow. But she went into the house to see if the neighbor was okay. Well, he ended up suing her. So it went to federal court and federal court basically said, this officer has immunity because this is an issue that judges argue about for months. So it's unfair to say that she violated this guy's constitutional rights. She behaved in a basically reasonable way. I think qualified immunity honestly is overrated. The issue to me in police reform was really use of force. That's where, and that's what we've been talking about. But the bottom line is qualified immunity affects officers who get sued in federal court. It doesn't have the same impact in state court. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of changes in it. I think you're going to end up having the same protection that you have. And I'll just say one more quick thing. To me, the issue for cops is not qualified immunity. It's indemnification. Thank God that when you get sued, your department, your agency pays for your legal fees. Because if you get sued and everything works out, it's $40,000, in legal fees. So that's the part where I think officers at least have that protection. And nobody's talking about getting rid of that. John, can you just talk about indemnification for some, because there might be some people that aren't familiar with that term out there, just basically what that is and what that means? Sure. Indemnification means that if you are a law enforcement officer and you work for a municipal agency or a state agency or a county agency, if you get sued, they pay your legal fees. And even if you lose a case, they end up paying the damages for the other side. The only exceptions are if you do something where you're assessed punitive damages or you commit an ethical violation. And every cop I talk to says, hey, if somebody's bad enough where the jury ends up assessing punitive damages, hey, they don't, you know, they don't deserve the protection of their agency. But look, any of us could be out on the street. If you're out on the street in real time, you could make a mistake and you could end up losing a legal case. But fortunately, you're not going to go bankrupt in the process. And I think it is important. We don't want you driving around with a scotch in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand going, oh, every move I make, I could get sued. <laughs> so mercifully, you're not at that point yet, right? A absolutely. And, and John, that would be a policy violation too, if we did that too, just so it's been said, yeah. right? So speaking of that, and John, very well put, I'm going to bring Tim on. Tim, I want you to... to just respond to the to the comment that Michael Powell makes. So Michael says, I think it's easy to say that everything's going to be all right. You just have to roll with it. But everyone that actively or proactively works the street should have that same concern going forward. If no one knows what the interpretations are, then how do you expect patrol officers to protect themselves on the street in a real-time scenario? Biting question, isn't it? It I mean, sure it's, is. It's one that's certainly taken up a lot of our time, uh, police administrators and police officers alike. I'm glad that everybody just got an opportunity to see why we all hired John to come into our police departments and explain some of these complex issues. And um, we are hiring John to come into our police department <laughs> and explain some of these complex issues, I think, at the end of this month. So, but he makes a, a great point, and that is the fear. The fear is that if the police officer, if we don't understand this right now as administrators or lawyers even or anybody uh, well enough, that the police officers are going to have that same concern. And that could be disastrous for society, frankly. And I'm not, I, again, I'm not, I'm not a sky is falling type of guy, but I completely understand that. I think a lot of the stuff in the bill has already been happening. A lot of the stuff in the bill 
we've already been doing. You know, Chuck mentioned about the uh, eight can't wait. I mean, if you look at that and you have policies that have been updated in the last four or five years, you have every one of those in there. So there are a lot of things. Now, again, going back to what John said, and he talked about the Wexler, um, about civilian review boards and how they tend to be more lenient. There is a major concern on the certification board that is civilian led. And I believe civilian review board don't certify officers. They just review incidents. Mm -hmm. I think this is the first in the country that is civilian led, meaning I think it's nine and six of them will be civilians have no law enforcement expertise. And that's a challenge. Um, I think one of the one of the solutions to that would be what we talked about. Get those folks some training. Get them into force science. Get them in front of Chuck Tachara and Dwayne Forts and John. And those are the folks, if they're going to be judging the way we we do our jobs, then they need to have an understanding. Our job is super complex. I think it was the associate justice in California that said it best when he said police training, you know, whatever the quote was, literally requires more daily re-education than a doctor or a lawyer needs to do his job, right? And we have to be a, a, a pharmacologist. We have to be a, a, a medic. We have to be all of these things, maybe in an eight-hour shift. And by the way, a badass superhero at the same time who can't make any mistakes. I mean, that's a very complex and distinct profession that we only want to be judged fairly on. So I think he makes a great point on that. Um, it's not a finished product. Chuck's going to have, as Chuck runs uh, use of force for the state, he's going to have some input prior to this being rolled out in July 1st on the use of force standards and definitions. And those are the things that I think will make a big difference in practicality. Um, but I can't deny that there is some concern out there and, and the public should be concerned about it too. I mean, the, the law is the law, and we're going to find our way through it. We've had tough times before in policing, but it's it's definitely a concern. And, I, you know, I hope that somewhat answers his question. Um, and maybe we can hit at that a little more if we need to. Well, well said. There was a lot in there, and it was a tough question. I mean, after all, this is difficult conversation, so there are no softballs here. <laughs> so we're going to roll from that. Tim, I'm going to have you touch upon this, and then I'm going to have Dwayne jump in on it as well. So John says, good cops are going to act appropriate and bad cops are going to act inappropriately. It seems that the real issue is to expose and remove officers that are bad cops. Are there environments in police stations where cops can stand up and report cops uh, who act inappropriately? So that might be the closest thing to a layup that we have. So touch upon <laughs> that. I mean, that's, that's a, I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. So here in Massachusetts, too. Keep in mind, the man that asked that does not live in Massachusetts. He's in New Mexico. So it might be done differently there than it is here. So talk about how we do it here in Mass, Tim, real quick. So I think a lot of departments have a pretty robust internal affairs um, division, or even if it's one person doing it. And, you know, with a lot of departments are also going to accreditation, and there are certain standards you have to uh, that you have to abide by in accreditation. Mm -hmm. And uh we are absolutely always trying to root out the bad cop. I heard Chucky say it before that, you know, nobody hates a bad cop worse than a good cop. Um, we got to continue to do that and we got to be transparent about it. But I will say this too. I, I, I've never seen a politician arrest a police officer. Cops who get locked up are locked up by other cops. That's what we do. If we find somebody who's broken the law, whether they wear the badge or not, that's what we do. Um, and I think the environment has changed dramatically over the last 25, 30 years where, you know, we, we can't stand for that. And we don't generally. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I can't speak for other parts of the country and I'm I'm assuming it's the same way. But I know in Massachusetts, we do a pretty good job of that. Uh, Tim, you hit that out of the park, you know, so that was a perfect answer. Dwayne, I'm going to have you piggyback that if you have anything to add on that, because I know. You, you are in corrections, but it's the same thing. I mean, you have standards and trainings in, in in your in your agency as well, right? So what do you do yeah. when something happens like that? Well, it happens and it starts in the beginning. It starts with the whole hiring process. You know, that's why they have interviews. You know, you got to sit there and, and, and go before a panel, get asked a specific set of questions. And then there's a, a an academy, which is a continuation of the hiring process. And that's where you identify people's, you know, strengths, not so, you know, in, in, in their moral character, if you will, um, 
integrity's tested throughout an academy from from day one, you know. And um, you know, to echo what Tim had said, you know, there's no, there's no no place no place for, for 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 bad apples, and they they get weeded out at in, at one point or another, you know. No one's above the law. Well, some people, I'll leave that one alone. Yeah, well, I heard there was a pretty good movie in the 80s, Above the Law. Yes. But yes. yes. It, 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 here in Massachusetts, John, to answer your question, that is something that we were already on top of. Uh, it, it's it's in most people's policies and procedures where you, you you it's a shall, you shall report any misconduct if you come across it. So, um, again, if anybody has any examples of that not happening that are specific to Massachusetts, please feel free to uh, to cite that. And we'll uh, we'll address it as it comes. So well put, Dwayne. So Steve wants to know. He says, "Hello there, hello all. Is there any change planned with the reform bill to allow more training time? Is eighty hours as a new officer enough to be held as an expert in use of force, baton, OC, which is pepper spray? To those who don't know, subject subject control, handcuffing, self defense, de escalation, searching, etc." So. Dwayne, why don't you touch upon that? And I'm going to bring Chuck in to piggyback. So go ahead. What do you think? Is 80 hours enough? Absolutely not. But the gentleman who asked that is, uh, that's my brother from another mother. He's my mentor. And uh, he asked that reason for, for, he asked that to put it out there. And you have officers that are sitting around right now saying, absolutely not. But what is the fix? The fix is, um, you know, you take DT, 80 hours. And I'm going to steal what Steve said. So me and Chuck, we're partners at a DT. We're learning DT. So 80 hours, we're going to learn this program. But half the time, Chuck is doing the technique on me. Half the other time, I'm doing the technique on Chuck. So is that really 80? No, we're down to 40. Now you're taking breaks and all that other stuff. And when it gets, Steve did this. We, we already did this analysis. And the average student that goes to a police academy gets roughly around 12 to 16 hours of hands-on. So is that enough? No. And it, well, you already know how I feel. I mean, Dwayne, just really quick, because it's pertinent to this. You have a hobby outside of your law enforcement career. You have a martial arts hobby. Yes? Yes. Can you tell us what that is? It's jujitsu. It's, 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 it's the, you know, keeping it playful. It's, it's, it's something in it that is, I believe, in my own personal opinion, so crucial to law enforcement, 99% of all altercations end up on the ground, but yet there is a very small, if zero, limited focus on ground de-escalation tactics. And, um, you know, but that's, you know, me and Chuck have been talking as well as Steve, and that that that's in the playbooks. And I think it's going to be a lot easier to, you know, navigate these waters as it had been in the past. So uh, okay. I look forward to it. So let me jump in and tell you why I brought that up. I brought that up because um, some of you know that I also dabble in uh, in jujitsu as well. And 80 hours to learn all of that, what Steve noted, it's a loaded question. Of course, that's not enough. Because as Dwayne will tell you, 80 hours is enough to learn um, five different, to master five different techniques of jujitsu, let alone all that other stuff. It's not enough. So those people that train and 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 do other things outside of law of law enforcement will tell you that it is not even close to enough. And that's again, that could be a football player. Take somebody who played football. Is eighty hours enough? Eighty hours of practice enough for you to master how to tackle somebody? Of course not. You know, yeah. is, is it master enough to learn how to perfectly field a ground ball if you're playing third base in baseball? Of course not. So that's why I brought that up, Chuck. What say you? Would you like a little more time training? Yeah, of, of course, especially on the especially on the physical skill. So I think that the mindset, you know, obviously there's they're limited in hours. It comes down to money, so they put together a program and they said, well, what does um, you know, we're putting together the recruit model at the academy. They said, well, what is a police officer? It's based on what a police officer would need to know the first five years on the job. So they're not going to spend time in the police academy learning how to do awesome investigations or um homicide investigations because they're not going to be doing that their first five years on the job. So they keep it very basic. So, you know, basic how to block a punch, how to throw a punch. But I think we all agree you can get some basics down, but not nearly, not nearly enough time in the term in terms of physical skills. And then there's also it's not just how to block and punch block and 
a punch and throw punch. There's a lot of there's a lot of understanding human behavior and understanding violence. So there's more even there's a mental part of use of force that even takes some time to get into. So you say, okay, 40, 80 hours is good for basic, but anybody out there would take 160 hours if we could get them or, 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 or it, at least another 40 hours. Same, same with firearms. You know, you go to a firearms, our firearms program is very good for basics. It teaches basic marksmanship skills, how to do a combat reload, how to do a attack reload, um, how to clear a malfunction stage one and two. And, and that's about it. It's not really trained in somebody to be a, a gunfighter. So you say 40 hours gives you the basics. And then you probably need another 40 hours to learn how to win a gunfight, but it's just the hours aren't there. So I, I always think physical skills, it's almost like they expect the officer is going to graduate from the academy. And a, and a lot do. I mean, you know, you know, you do Dean and, and, and Joe, uh, Wojo does. And, and I do, we, we, we seek training on our own, but not everybody is, is able to do that. Not everybody can afford to do that. So um, you know, a lot of our officers out there trying to seek training on their own, but you're really just getting the basics at the academy. Absolutely. So I'm going to go to hit the chat real quick. More training builds confidence. Confidence provides control. Control leads to making good decisions. Amen to that. Inexperience and lack of confidence lead to mistakes and frustration and bad choices. So that's from Steve again, and that's another one where I can hear the inflection in his voice as he is typing that. So, uh, so uh, give me one second. I'm sorry. Say it again. So I'm going to bring in Tim. Tim seems to feel some kind of way about this. Tim, no, I, I was just going to mention Holy Ghost in the in the comments. There. It seemed like you were ready to you know throw your hands up and praise the Lord on that. So I was. I was getting into it. Wojo's comments is another guy we hired to come in to teach some DT. Um, fantastic, fantastic police officer retired recently, correct? Yeah, yep, yeah, recently um, retired, yes. But I, I, I believe it was, it was, I, I, and I'll probably get the comment wrong, but a high school wrestler has more training in combat than a police officer may receive in his career. Wasn't there? I thought it was Wojo that said that. I could be wrong, but there's, there's something in regards to that. And if, uh, you know, the training time is always going to be Tim, I think it was Dwayne. He said, any high school wrestler. Any high school wrestler. I mean, that should tell you right there that the guys, the the, the amount of training is just dismal. Um, but it's a reality because it's budgets. And there's so many things that you need to learn. And there's so many things that you need to be trained on and be proficient in. And guess what? If you make a mistake and you've been trained on it, then you're going to be held accountable for that. So it's it's a very difficult and complex pr uh, profession. And we need the folk. Like cops don't mind. Again, they'll say it again. They don't mind being judged on their actions as long as it's a level playing field. And that's what we're striving for. All right, Dwayne, talk a little bit about the training aspect. I know that's something you're passionate about. Yeah, no, you know, Deputy Chief Cahoon was absolutely right. Um, but it's it's not just uh, a high school wrestler. You take any high school athlete, any high school athlete from freshman to senior year, one sport, the amount of practice and time that they put into that, field hockey, baseball, tennis, golf, name the sport. Freshman to senior year, they will put in quadruple the hours that any police officer will in training for a 20-year career. A high school athlete, four years. A police officer, 20 years, will not even come close to the amount of training hours that will put in. And I'm talking about the physical skill. And that that's that, you know. And with real quick, back to, you know, um, you know, jujitsu with with Jiu-jitsu and law enforcement, you know, there's this misconception about jujitsu is about, you know, submission and chokes. And the, the, the whole aspect of jujitsu is to, to build that level of confidence in which you are so confident and capable of, of, of your abilities that the last thing that you want to do is go hands on. And when you do go hands on, you have a knowledge. It's not, you know. Uh, use of force, as we always talked about, doesn't look good. It doesn't look pretty. But when you have officers on the ground who are unfamiliar with controlling somebody on the ground, well, then that's where you get the tugs, the pulls. You're pulling left. I'm pulling right. Someone's trying to get the – and it, everybody's getting pulled in different directions. Now fatigue sets in. And when fatigue sets in, then that's when basic instincts turn in. So I see a rib, and now I just throw a shot because in my mind I just want to stop this. 
but realistically, the person is actively resisting, and we can't you can't teach striking when somebody to the letter of is is actively resisting. So with jujitsu in the law enforcement arena, it's and back to the repetitions too. Ten thousand repetitions. That, that's that's garbage. That's old school. It takes anywhere. It's it, four hundred repetitions. Four hundred repetitions to get synapses in the brain. Realistically, is when you keep it playful. When I talk about when you have an emotional connection to that technique and you realize, wow, this works. It's no different. How many times you're going to touch a hot stove? Once. Why? Because it burnt. You know better not to go to that stove. When you do a technique and you embrace that technique and you know that it works. That's synapses in the brain, and you're going to connect to it. I'm all about that, and I'm, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> hey, it's all right, Dwayne, because people need to hear this. This is the peek behind the curtain that actually, you know what? This isn't even a peek behind the curtain. We're ripping the thing open, and we want to see, we want to show people exactly what this decision-making process should be like with people that are experts in these given uh, disciplines. So well said. So I'm going to bring John back on. So, John. Yeah. De so, obviously, de-escalation, because the chat is going crazy with de-escalation questions. All right? Yeah. So, Michael Michael wants to know, well, he's saying that de-escalation is nothing new. We've had it for years. It's what they called warning, verbal judo, nonviolent crisis intervention, tactical communication, and now it's de-escalation. So, cops have been de-escalating for years. All right? So what it looks like he wants to get to here is, again, there seems to be a lot of angst as to how we are going to be judged as to whether or not it was a proper use of de-escalation. I know we talked about it before, but if I, you could just touch upon it a little bit more, because again, and rightfully so, people are, are concerned about it. Well, a couple of things. I mean, since cops have been doing it for years, it's something that they will continue to do. I think the difference, the one thing that we haven't had is we've never had de-escalation be explicitly in a statute about use of force. And people may be nervous, but I think with these ideas, you know, it's subjective. I mean, we're never going to be able to give you a robotic definition of reasonable force, right? I mean, all our great instructors here, you know, Wojo and Chuck and Dwayne, they they can't tell you exactly what's reasonable. They can't tell you exactly what they would do until they're faced with the situation. But I think we it is reasonable. I think we do know we may not know when when use of force is perfect, but I think we know when somebody's gone way over the line. I think we usually can figure that out in law enforcement. And I think we can also figure out that there are certain basic kinds of communication that we want officers to do before they go hands on. And that's really why there's been such a movement in policing. Again, not lawyers, but police officers who talk about creating distance and having a little more opportunity to calm somebody down. So I, I, I love the people that are saying, oh, yeah, I've been doing this my whole career. Sure you have. And I think you're going to continue to do it. But the one thing I think is different is we're now there's a public expectation that we're going to expect it from all officers. OK, fair, fair enough. Um, yeah. I think that it's a little bit of people being influenced from what they're seeing happen in other parts of the country. I am um, every show that I do, I always say, you know, this is it, our lessons and the whole tenets of, of difficult conversations can be applied to any place. But I'm still looking for people to give me give some examples of things that are happening here in the Commonwealth where we're not de-escalating, where we are not communicating properly and giving people an opportunity to withdraw from their bad behavior. And, I, and I'm just not really seeing very many examples of that. Um, it's it's turned into a bit of an unfair situation. Actually, it is an unfair situation where we are being held accountable for things that are happening a thousand miles away from where we yes. work. Yeah. So I just wanted, you know, maybe John, if you had any thoughts on that and then we'll get Chuck involved in this as well. I think one of the hard things in law enforcement is the bad national case is something that people assume is happening in their own community. And there, you know, there isn't evidence that George Floyd is happening here, but that's what people 
look at and that's what they react to all right fair enough so chuck tim timothy joseph wants to know just to know did you see chokeholds eventually being revisited in the reform bill for officers most departments have weapons of opportunity in their policies as a last ditch effort to save our lives i can't believe we could use a pocket knife to stab somebody to save our own life or hit someone with a flashlight but not use a choke if we did use a choke, we face termination or possible criminal charges. So we talked about that last week, but again, this is on people's minds, Chuck. So if you could talk about this a little bit, John, if you if you feel some sort of way about something Chuck says, please have a little volley. So go ahead, gentlemen. Okay, so so with chokes, this is and this is one of those areas of the bill that that I I go home and drink in the dock over because it's is the de-escalation part doesn't bother me because I think we've always done it. The, the chokes is just it's just there's just I think at the end of the day, it's going to, some of these things are going to be as no, nobody wants to be case law. <laughs> nobody wants to be clearly established case law, but it's, it's probably going to happen. So right now the deal with chokes is I'm going to read you the definition right from the bill on, on chokehold. Okay. Chokehold defined the use of a lateral vascular neck restraint, carotid restraint, or other action that involves the placement of any part of law enforcement officer's body on or around a person's neck in a manner that limits a person's breathing or blood flow with the intent or with the result of causing bodily injury, unconsciousness, or death. So that's that's the definition. And there's even there's even some play in the definition. So this got kicked around back and forth. Um, police departments fought this because at the end of the day, the law is the law. So a police officers can use deadly force, immediate defense of life, self-defense, defense of another, life in peril, life in immediate danger. So because of an incident that happened in Minneapolis, Everybody loses their mind about chokes. Is chokeholds a problem in this state? No, there's not one single case, and I've been doing this for 33 years, that I've seen where a choke was an issue or a cop strangled somebody. But it's So it's an issue now because it's the, it's the sexy topic of the day is chokeholds. So they really, no matter how much we push back with the unions and with, with training to explain that police chokes have always been technically banned, and by ban, same thing. It's subjective. Ban to me means we don't teach them, we don't train them, they're not in the policy. So they're essentially banned, okay? However, like the caller had wrote in, when a police officer's life is in danger, then deadly force is not tool-specific. If I have to fight to save my life or somebody else's life, then deadly force is not tool-specific. It doesn't have to be a firearm. So, so chokes are not taught and they're not trained, but if your life was in peril, you could use a choke. That's the way it's been for years and most departments that have tools of immediate opportunity in their policy, that's kind of what it's covered under. So now, now Chuck, Chuck, can I just jump in real quick? Just want to throw this out there. The way that's written, it reads to me like a headlock could now be thrown in there because if you think about it, a tight headlock restricts your breathing some and it could cause injury. I mean, it could, it could wrench your neck. So now right. the standard old school headlock could get lumped into this if the wrong person was applying this. So just want to throw that in there. Yeah, it's, and it's true, and that kind of goes with that that subjective part of it. But they they really would not budge. They would not budge on this part of the bill. Trust me, it was it was no right. chokes. I would still be teaching up until this really hit that it, they're banned. But still, if your life is in peril, and I probably might even say, you know, at the end of the day, you do what you need to do to save your life. Okay, but it, they're essentially banned now. But there's going to be you look at the you look at the definition intent. So if I put you, you know as well as I do, Dean, you're, there's going to be some officer put somebody in the headlock, and somebody's going to call the choke. Yeah. I'm going to tackle somebody from behind and pull them to the ground with a takedown, and because my hand placement is up underneath their shoulder and neck, someone's going to call the choke. So mm -hmm. these are some of the things that uh, they, they 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 do worry me a little bit. But I think at the end of the day, I still think we're going to be okay because. It's it's not it's not a choke. So when you look at the definition, we just have to make sure officers are explaining it wasn't a choke and what their intent was, i.e., I intended to reshift my body weight or gain leverage. So I think that chokehold, there has to be some intent that you're trying to tap the person out as well. So I think we need to understand that. All right, good point. John, any any re any response to that? Yeah, I think I think people really reacted to the Eric Garner killing in New York because he was somebody who was choked. And he ended up dying. And the issue with Eric Garner, too, is it was such a minor offense, you know, selling untaxed cigarettes. And I think that also really just galvanized people to say, no, we can't allow this under any circumstance. I have to say this. 
it is an area where the statute is really clear. It says, you know, no chokeholds, period. But I, I do agree with Chuck. I think when an officer's life is completely at risk and there's no alternative, we've, we've seen cases where, where courts and other bodies have respected the decision of the officer. Because, of course, if you're desperate, it's the same thing we go through with warning shots. You know, some departments say you can never fire a warning shot. Some departments, Boston's policy says you can't fire a warning shot unless there's no other way to convince a potential attacker that you mean business and you're going to shoot. Uh, so I, I think chokes are another area where it's just such a uh, it's just the third rail for for public critics of the police that this is the standard that we have ended up with in the law. And, and I'm glad you said that because at the end of the day, I know that we're saying that we're all going to be fine and police and police officers are going to be fine in the long run. And I get that. And you know what? I believe that too. I believe that too, because eventually every more people in society are going to realize that we, they need us. You need police officers. If you didn't have police officers, it would be absolute chaos out there. But I think that we also need to validate some of the fears that people have like, we can't just brush it off and say, hey, you, you got nothing to worry about, kid. Get back out there and handle your route. I don't think that we can be doing that as leaders either, you know, because, right. again, I spoke about this last week. When I first started 16 years ago, you had to worry about physical survival on this job. And you had to worry about maybe 10 years ago, there was a big push to start worrying about emotional survival on this job. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to circle back with you after the way the show ended last night where we got cut off due to the storm. So the point that I was making when I got cut off was there are three main areas that police officers have to worry about where their overall survival and, and well-being is something that needs to be taken into account. So the first one that I started talk, talking about was physical well-being. That's the obvious one. That is the process of making sure that you make it home at the end of your shift. That has always been one of the golden tenets, golden rules of police work. The second one is emotional survival. And that is something that has been pushed uh, very heavily in the last 10 years where no longer is it acceptable for us to expect police officers to just suppress our feelings, suppress what we hear smell, taste, and see, because I'm sure you can imagine uh, it, it, it takes a toll on you after a while when you uh, have many, many years of dealing with people on the worst days of their lives. And in some cases, it means that you're seeing uh, a lot of finality of lives and that, and that can be tough to deal with. So that's the emotional piece. And the final piece from there, which is something that's relatively new, maybe the last four or five years it's really picked up, is financial survival. So financial survival is the component that takes place when you are being sued in civil, you know, uh, civilly for actions that you have taken that may or may not be well within the scope of your training and experience. So you know, basically what that means is you could do something which you were trained to do when you went through, you, it was something you were trained to do when you went through your academy and your training. And now as time has gone on, it is no longer an acceptable action that you can take and people are physically suing people. I thought that uh, attorney chef made a great point last night when he spoke about in the indemnification of police officers, meaning that you are indemnified by your municipality so if you are sued, and even if things work out, work out as four forty or fifty thousand dollars in the hole legally, and that would be too much to bear for most police officers. I know it would be for me. So having that indemnification from your town kind of it, it it ensures that you have set that financial survival piece that uh that I was talking about, and that's something that's very real, and it's something that a lot of police officers worry about, and rightfully so. So hopefully you got a lot out of this show tonight. It was something that uh, that I feel needed to happen. If you took the time to watch a show, share this show, like this show, then you are a part of history in Massachusetts because this has never been done before. There's never been an open forum in which you have real police officers and real police trainers sharing their thoughts on changes and how those changes ought to be implemented and how they affect police officers 
how they affect the people that train police officers and ultimately how they affect you, the citizens. So if you like this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe to any of our social media platforms. You can see them at the bottom of the screen. Please like, please share, please comment. Uh, the more you you more you do that, the more you help us get the word out there, the more we can keep having these difficult conversations for the purpose of just making everybody a little bit better. Um, I'm gonna leave you with a quote that I that I that I recently heard from another podcast, a gentleman named Kwame Christensen. And he says the best things in life reside on the other side of difficult conversations. So I want you to take that with you, and we'll see you back next week for another episode. Good night, everybody. Hashtag supply the why.